Welcome to your daily affirmations. Repeat after me, working with others is easier than ever. I strive for perfect collaboration. Our teamwork keeps getting better. Yeah, affirmations are great, but Monday.com can really get you the teamwork you desire. Work together easily and share files, updates, data, and just about anything you want all in one platform. Affirm yes to start. Or tap the banner to go to Monday.com. This episode is brought to you by Kia's first three-row all-electric SUV, the Kia EV9. With available all-wheel drive and seating for up to seven adults. With zero to 60 speed that thrills you one minute. And available lounge seats that unwind you the next. Visit kia.com slash EV9 to learn more. Ask your Kia dealer for availability. No system, no matter how advanced, can compensate for all driver error and or driving conditions. Always drive safely. With Lucky Land Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. This is your captain speaking. Uh, We've got clear runway and the weather's fine, but we're just going to circle up here a while and uh, get lucky. No, no, nothing like that. It's just these cash prizes add up quick. So I suggest you sit back, keep your tray table upright, and start getting lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Hello, this is Marshall Poe of the New Books Network. The NBN is run by volunteers, but we do have expenses. If you'd like to support us, please go to any New Books Network website. There you can make a tax-deductible contribution. Just click the Donate to the NBN link and follow the instructions. Alternatively, you can click the Amazon link before you make your Amazon purchases. Since the NBN is a member of the Amazon Affiliates Program, Amazon pays us a small fee for referrals. Whether you can help us out or not, thanks for listening, and I hope you enjoy the following interview. Hello, and welcome to New Books in Global Ethics and Politics. I'm John McMahon, PhD candidate in political theory at the Graduate Center of the City University of New York and one of the hosts of the channel. I'm also a fellow at the Center for Global Ethics and Politics, which sponsors the podcast and is part of the Ralph Bunch Institute at the Graduate Center. Today, I'm speaking to Dale Jameson, Professor of Environmental Studies and Philosophy at New York University, about his book, Reason in a Dark Time, Why the Struggle Against Climate Change Failed and What It Means for Our Future, out from Oxford University Press in 2014. This is an impressively broad and wide-ranging book on climate change and the human response to it. Jameson starts out by sketching the nature of the problem and the emergence of climate science, then going on to discuss a number of obstacles to effective human action to mitigate climate change. These obstacles include the role of science in American culture, climate change denial, the relationship between science and the policy world, the complexity of climate change as a problem, and the limits of economic approaches. From there, Jameson's book takes a turn to thinking through pragmatic, philosophical, ethical, and moral responses to climate change, arguing that we need revised notions of responsibility if we're to adequately grapple with climate change as a problem. The end of the book asks the question of how we might live with climate change, what kinds of ethical virtues and potential policies might we pursue in response. In general, the book is a broad view of the failure, in many ways, of our responses to climate change, as well as the possible futures that might unfold in our relationship to it. I'd urge you all to go and read the entire book, which is impressively uh, very readable, but at the same time very much gets into the heart of the scientific, philosophical, political, historical, and economic issues in climate change. I hope you enjoy our interview. Joining me now is Dale Jameson, who is Professor of Environmental Studies and Philosophy and Chair of the Environmental Studies Department at New York University. He's also the author of Reason in a Dark Time, Why the Struggle Against Climate Change Failed, and What It Means for Our Future, out from Oxford University Press in 2014. Dale, thank you so much for joining us on the podcast. My pleasure, John. Um, So, Dale, I was hoping you could start with the same question that we ask all of our guests, and that is, Tell us some about your own background and how you came to write this particular book. Well, the problem with talking about one's own background is one doesn't know whether really to start in the stars and the galaxies. Or, <laughs> if you'd like uh, to. <laughs> as a child growing up in Southern California. Um, but I think probably the most important thing 
to say is that I started as a relatively conventional philosopher. I wrote my dissertation in philosophy of language, uh, although I did do early work in ethics. And uh, and and my first tenure, really real tenure track job was at the University of Colorado in Boulder. Boulder is one of those places where it's almost impossible not to just sort of fall into the green zone and become interested in environmental mm-hmm. issues. And I became friends with some people who were working at the National Center for Atmospheric Research on climate models. And so I got interested in these issues at first, just sort of in the way some people are interested in crossword puzzles and other people are interested in in knitting. Uh, I just sort of got a little interested in climate change. And what happened is just, I, I assumed that this idea that people were changing climate wouldn't really happen, that we would discover some feedbacks that would sort of cancel out the forcing that was caused by emitting greenhouse gases, but that the adults, you know, would figure out how to save us from our folly. But somehow that didn't happen. And I just found that what went from an avocation uh, over the years became a vocation. So I wrote a lot of papers on climate change over the years. And finally, after the failure of the Copenhagen Conference of the Parties in 2009, I felt a certain process had come to an end. It was important to tell people the truth that we were now going to have to learn to live with climate change. Right. And now, could you maybe talk a little bit about what living with climate change means for you, especially after Copenhagen? Because that's kind of a theme that runs throughout the entirety of the book, is that um, that might be the proper frame for thinking through um, our relationship to the Anthropocene or other the ethics we might cultivate um, in response, but what that idea of living with climate change does. So the first thing to say, I think, is that especially, I think, in American culture, we sort of have this idea that the Lone Ranger is going to gallop <laughs> in at the end of the day, and the worst that people imagine or predict will never quite come to pass. Little Nell gets saved from snidely whiplash, <laughs> uh, freed from the railroad tracks just before the evil train comes bearing down upon her. And somehow I think this is kind of a frame that we have for most of our problems. And um, and so the idea that actually we have this problem that we're just going to have to live with, that has changed the very conditions of life on, on, on Earth, is very hard for us to get our, our hands around. Now, what does it mean to actually live with climate change? Well, it means, first of all, to be involved in a constant struggle to try to mitigate its effect, to reduce its effect, to make it less extreme, uh, to make it less rapid in the changes that it brings about. But it also means that we're going to have to come to terms with a world that's very different from the world in which we were born, the world in which our stories were written and our music was was composed. And this is going to affect uh, the way we find meaning in our lives, the way uh, we come to feel about particular places, uh, and, and so on. Right. Now, to tell that story, you start in the second chapter of the book, with kind of the emergence of climate science itself and our understanding of the problem. Um, what's kind of important in that story for you in setting up a philosophical and ethical and political and, you know, life response to climate change? Well, part of what's important has to do with the way it interacts with what we might think of as the Enlightenment project. And while I think... Uh, Philosophers, especially of the postmodern stripe, like to uh, sort of make fun of the idea of the Enlightenment. Uh, It's still something that I think is very close to uh, really the presuppositions of what we're all doing when we do philosophy, which is somehow the idea that coming to understand truths about the world will better arm us in being able to make intelligent decisions and to contribute to life being being better for everyone. And there's a way of looking at the climate change problem where it is the ultimate devastating counterexample to our ability or at least willingness uh, to mobilize scientific knowledge in the service of improving life and maintaining society. So I think it's important to tell the story of that history because in some way the ultimate challenge of climate change is not just climate change, as, as profound as that is, is the ultimate challenge is really um, how can we go on living in a world where together 
we cause problems and undermine the conditions of life on the planet. And we know that we do that, but yet somehow seem unable to act effectively to stop doing that. Right. I think important there is something that I found really interesting in the second chapter in particular, where you talk about the crossover from the emergence of climate sciences, more exclusively a scientific discourse, to one that becomes more public discourse, and then that becomes part of the global diplomacy networks um, and institutions of our time. So what's kind of unique or what stands out to you from the particular processes or the particular path um, that climate science drew in becoming more public? So the story in many ways is a fairly conventional one in the history of science. Uh, Scientists in the 19th century were interested in climate issues because they were interested in the ice ages. They wanted to know what drove the ice ages. And some of those interests were initially driven by geology, by beginning to see disruptions in the Earth's core and trying to understand what caused that. There were some bad leads. People had theories that didn't quite uh, pan out. They were, they were corrected. Um, we get into the 1950s and the picture starts to become very clear. Articles start to be written in scientific, popular scientific magazines like Scientific American. Articles start to appear in the New York Times. It's not, the issue is not being framed as a desperate issue or anything of that sort, but there is a great concern in the scientific community that the emissions of fossil fuels are beginning to change the temperature on the planet, and we know that that's associated with the Ice Age cycle. Um, And so in the 60s, we actually get the issue into the White House. Lyndon Johnson, President Lyndon Johnson in 1965, in a message to Congress, actually mentions the issue of emitting carbon dioxide into the atmosphere and changing the climate. It remains an issue under discussion in the Nixon White House. We have memos from Daniel Patrick Moynihan that were written to John Ehrlichman, the chief domestic advisor to Nixon. But then something, we, we start getting National Academy reports in the 70s and 80s, but then something happens when this issue really collides full on with the, with the political system. Climate change denial breaks out, uh, and even more important in a way than climate change denial is just the aversion to casting our eyes on an issue that is this deep and this profound and cuts so much to the heart of industrial society that we as a society just sort of choose to go into something more like denial, sort of passive denial, tacit denial, rather than sort of militant, overt, Rush Limbaugh kind mm-hmm. of denialism. Right. In, in Chapter 3, um, <clears throat> entitled Obstacles to a- Action, you talk through kind of, in some ways, the different form that those various sorts of denials take place. And one of the things that you start the chapter with that was interesting to me was how what you describe as uh, scientific illiteracy or at the maybe more, you know, less polemically, just kind of common misconceptions or misunderstandings about what science is, um, how that's limited our ability to address climate change. Could you tell us some of how that works in your mind? Well, C.P. Snow, the British scientist and novelist, wrote a very provocative essay in the 50s called The Two Cultures. And in that essay, he, the point he was making, this was about Britain of the post-World War II era, was that governance at that point was largely in the hands of people who were trained in the humanities at the elite universities in Britain. Science was viewed as something kind of rude and crude and sort of uh, the sort of thing that people who in a previous era would have done things with their hands didn't have the same sort of status. And there was kind of a mutual contempt between the two. And something like that two cultures problem continues to uh, exist to, to present. There are almost no trained scientists in the United States Congress. If, uh, if you, could, if you could sue nature or negotiate with the universe, we would be very well equipped <laughs> to address the climate change problem because we're, the Congress is full of lawyers. Um, but lawyers, by the very nature of their training, tend to um, shape and mobilize facts to make cases. And 
nature does not negotiate in that in that way. Now, one thing I think that is important is that the fundamental issue, in a way, isn't really scientific knowledge. It's not the, the, the problem that we have that relates to science isn't so much that people haven't memorized um, the, the catechisms of geophysics or anything <laughs> of that nature. It's that so few people really understand how scientific thinking proceeds and what scientific vocabularies are like. And one way that that tends to uh, come up, and in a way we should have been alerted to this by the, um, the fuss that gets raised over evolution, that for much of the American public to call evolution a theory is in some way to demean it or already mm-hmm. be halfway towards, towards denying it. But of course, from a scientific perspective, virtually everything uh, that we might believe can be thought of as being a theory in need of confirmation and always possible uh, to falsify. So we tend to think, I think, of, you know, that things are either true or they're false. And that that's not how science works. I mean, science tends to be probabilistic. It tends to embrace um, hypotheses and see whether they can be confirmed with greater or lesser uh, credence in them and so on. And all of that tends to look, I think, to the general public like, you know, if you're not certain about something, then you must think it's false. Uh, why should we really respond to something that's a theory? Um, but yet, um, that is the very the very core of, sci- of scientific thinking. So the, the the kind of gulf between, I think, science, science, and people who are trained in science and others in American society is not so much a the epistemological gulf is not so much about some set of beliefs that one mm-hmm. community accepts and the other denies. It's really about very different ways of thinking, taking the world. Right. Could you give us an example or two of how that has played out in, say, public discussions of climate change? Well, one um, very irritating way that it, that it plays out is that climate change uh, deniers uh, tend to um, uh, sort of have kind of embraced this odd um, dualism, really, of on the one hand appealing to authority. So if I have a PhD who denies science, I will just embrace myself in the mm-hmm. authority of that of that that person. While at the same time uh, not understanding that real authority in science tends to come from the weight of the peer-reviewed literature. And so they'll often be quite dismissive of the peer-reviewed literature and say, well, it's peer review. It's just, you know, something you write that all your friends then say is okay, right? Well, at the same time, um, you know, investing a great deal of authority in some particular person who may not even be a specialist in this area or haven't even really published anything in this area. So, so what that begins to expose are really very different conceptions of the sources of epistemological authority. Right. Now, another kind of background thing that's going on here, it seems to me, that you discuss in the book is kind of common sense about the relationship between facts and values. I mean, obviously this is a millennial-old problem, um, but maybe specifically to climate change, what do you see going on in public discourse about it that misunderstands or misreads or problematically sets up the relationship between facts and values? Well, this is a hard one because this is a topic in which scientists are not very, mm-hmm. very good either. And um, so, so some scientists, notably, for example, Jim Hansen, who's perhaps the most famous uh, climate scientist, someone who's really gone into becoming an activist, um, if you read his writings, he often says things like, the science demands that we stop burning coal. Mm-hmm. The science doesn't demand <laughs> anything. So, you know, my mother is in the business <laughs> of de- making demands. Science is not in the business of making, of making demands. So sometimes in this kind of in, within the scientific community, I mean, one view that often gets expressed is sort of this idea that these imperatives issue from science and everything else is just politics, by which they mean some form of mystification or irrationality, mm-hmm. uh, and people should just get in line behind sort of their best reading of the science. 
The other line that sometimes comes from the sciences uh, and from scientists is that science is value neutral. uh, And so scientists should really stay out of questions of public controversy. Now, when I first got involved in the climate change issue, the second view was a very, very common view. People, scientists were very hesitant to enter the public discussion. But I, th- I think what's happened, particularly around this issue, is that m- many scientists have just been shocked how little uptake, how little response there's been to climate science, and as a result have jumped into the discussion. But as we know, this is a perennial problem, and, um, and you know, um, with most philosophical views, uh, sadly, the truth is often some very <laughs> complex uh, amalgam of what seem like competing intuitions. And so uh, it's true in some sense that science facts don't tell us what we ought to do or to believe, but to think that they have nothing to do with what we ought to do or think is obviously not a tenable view either. But the real philosophical work is to try to map those relations, which is an extremely difficult task. Right. So on the one hand, there's this philosophical problem, but on the other, there's also the interface of how science and policymaking interface or don't interface with one another. Um, Could you tell us a little bit about either the history or kind of maybe generalizing about that history, what the relationship between climate science and climate policy has been and has not been. Well, one problem there is that science just tends to work on a different clock than mm-hmm. policy. So, so when it comes to science, um, closure on a question is kind of boring and, <laughs> and certainly isn't, isn't required. Controversies can stay alive for a very, very long time. Um, the fun is often in the details and the slow progress in the interesting imaginative hypothesis. But when it comes to policy, you got to do something. Um, so often there's a kind of impatience, I think, also that policy people will have with scientists. There's a famous story where Harry Truman was, was supposed to have said that he was tired when he, took, when he would take scientific advice, that scientists would say on the one hand, and on the other hand, he was rumored to have said, will somebody please find me a goddamned one-armed <laughs> scientist? Um, I mean, so there's that. There's the difference of clocks. Um, there's um, the fact that policymakers in some sense have to stand behind their decisions. I mean, the, the world changes because of policy decisions. Scientists in that sense uh really do their best to ablate themselves, right? And I mean, it's what my model is telling me. It's what mm-hmm. the science is saying. So there's a, there's a kind of responsibility that political leaders have to take that scientists don't. Scientists are very uncomfortable with. So you're really talking about very different forms of life here. And so it's, it's, it's not surprising that the interface is just so difficult and so rocky. Uh, But yet, sort of in the best of times, we were able to negotiate that. And there are heroes in this story. I mean, until, I mean, someone I talk about in my book is Roger Revelle, who was the founder of the University of California at San Diego, famously was a a professor of of Al Gore's at Harvard. Um, And, you know, Revelle was really one of those people who was able to take the science to kind of structure the research to do the science policy and to sort of bring these questions in a living way to the light of policymakers. He was the person probably most responsible for bringing this issue to the attention of Lyndon Johnson. for example. Now, with on top of these particular problems we've been discussing, there's also climate change deniers. And so one of the things that you discuss in the book about denialism when it comes to climate change is epistemological nihilism. I was wondering if you could tell us what what that meant and how that plays out among climate change deniers. Well, um, the you know we have a problem, um, which is that you know, and we're seeing this in the political campaigns I think that are going on now now as well. That people don't view truth claims as being fundamentally about 
truth. They view them, some people view them fundamentally as about what they can get out of making those claims. And so what happens with climate change deniers, for example, as happened with people who denied that smoking caused cancer, that putting lead in gasoline um, would cause uh, birth defects and uh, mental deficiencies, is that in many cases, people who deny that these substances cause these problems aren't playing the scientific game. It's not a scientific debate, and they're claiming, no, no, the null hypothesis is true. There's no effect here. They are either indifferent to the truth, uh, as Harry Frankfurt would say in his book, they're bullshitting, Mm -hmm. right, because it's indifference to the truth, or they know what's true, and there's reason to think, for example, that Exxon actually knew uh, that emitting carbon caused climate change. Uh, But if they can continue business as usual for another day, another year, another decade, another century, and then have to change their business practices, well, that's that's essentially a business decision. So what the epistemological nihilism fits into is this idea that truth claiming is is not, is, is, is really kind of a, a sort of performative utterance. I mean, it looks like someone's claiming uh, that something is true, but really they're actually trying to do something. And in this case, what they're trying to do is simply to create space for continuing business as usual for some period of time. And this is just uh, a a recurrent pattern, certainly in American society, as is well documented, for example, in the book by Naomi Oreskes and Eric Conway called Merchants of Doubt. And in some ways even better in the movie, where you actually get some climate change deniers uh, to actually talk about how much fun it is to use Harry Frankfurt's technical term, <laughs> bullshit. Now, the last of the obstacles to action that you discuss and what you name as the greatest obstacle in many ways are our evolutionary biological endowments and how they make us unsuitable to address a problem like climate change. Why is that something that we might consider as the greatest obstacle to act in? Mother Nature did not build us to react to tasteless, odorless gases that incrementally build up in the atmosphere and radically change climate. If carbon dioxide were a sickly green color that smelled like rotten eggs that made you break out in a rash, we probably would have done something already about this problem. We think of ourselves as rational animals, but the truth is we're much better at sensing than we are at thinking. And we only can sense what's within the range of our particular senses. I mean, if we were a different species, if our sensory organs were constituted differently, we might be able to see carbon dioxide emissions. So they might have some olfactory effect on us. But given our sensory limitations and our, 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 our rather pathetic but admirable attempts to reason, uh, we, we, we've just managed to create problems that are extremely difficult for us to get our minds around. And so one of the kind of comforting thoughts about climate change is, well, you know, it's not really that we're so bad. Um, this is the most difficult problem that humanity has has, has ever faced. So it's not surprising that we're flailing and trying to address it. Right. Now, and then in the next chapter, in chapter four, you turn to think about economic ways of understanding the problem of climate change. So now, before we get into kind of some of the more particular debates, which I would like to get into, could you maybe kind of give us a sense of the general um, economic story of climate change um, in terms of externalities and commons and collective action problems? So, um, so just to set that discussion up a little bit. So when we face problems collectively, we tend to have two major institutions for addressing those problems. One institution is economic thinking, which essentially tells us how best to maximize our utility as individuals. Mm-hmm. The other is morality, 
which helps us resolve conflicts between individuals. And together, from economics and morality, we can sometimes construct politics. Now, um, so the first problem that we have is that, you know, we tend to think of economics and morality as being something that is delivered to us by pure reason. But really, like everything else, they're socially constructed by um, relatively by communities of uh, of great apes of our species that have a certain kind of history and have dealt with certain kinds of problems. <coughs> and so we have these techniques and we have these tools, and they generally work pretty well for the kinds of problems that we have as species have faced, but they don't always work so well for novel problems like climate change. So let's then take economics. So we didn't really have much of a story about environmental economics uh, until Jevons in the 20s uh, uh, began to really develop the idea of of an externality. And then this idea becomes much more fully developed in the 1960s. And the idea is this, is rests on the observation that sometimes what happens in economic relationships is that there are costs or benefits, and in this case we're talking about costs, that aren't borne simply by the buyer and seller of the commodity, that in some cases those costs are externalized uh, over other people who are not party to that transaction. So the classic case in environmental economics is essentially somebody who has a factory and sort of burns coal uh, to, to produce widgets and sells the widgets to somebody at a certain price, and the price of the widget uh, just reflects the cost of burning the coal. But there's poor old Mrs. Smith who lives next to the factory, and she hangs her clothes out to dry, and these clothes are uh, are sullied by the suit that comes from the from the factory. So there's an external cost to this nice relationship of buying and selling widgets that poor Mrs. Smith has to bear. And that's kind of the paradigm for the way that economics treats environmental problems. It tends to view them as externalities whose costs are not just reflected in the market transactions between producers and consumers. So you can look at carbon in that way, for example. So when I sort of cheerfully drive my car down the road, um, I'm, I'm doing lots of things, including listening to the Beach Boys and having a great time. But one thing I'm also doing is I'm emitting carbon, which is going to affect people in remote parts of the world and is also going to affect future generations, mm-hmm. not to mention non-human animals. Um, but those, but I'm not paying those costs. When I buy a gallon of gasoline, those costs are not internalized. So the general way that economists want to address the climate problem is to try to figure out how to internalize the costs of emitting carbon uh, back into the transaction between people who sell carbon and people who purchase it and then emit it. And in principle, that's a good idea. Uh, and there are some useful things that can be done from that perspective, but it's um, but when you actually try to do the computations about what those externalized costs are, and then you get into the politics of trying to impose them, things very quickly, well, not so quickly, but they, they fall apart eventually. Right, and now to get into that debate some, now I was hoping you could maybe tell us an abbreviated version of the story of the debate between Stern and Nordhaus, because both of them are interested in thinking through how can we price carbon to in, to internalize its costs, right? Exactly. But they go about it in different ways with differing values, particularly in their orientations to the future, right? So I wonder if you could maybe, you know, relate to us kind of some of what that debate is about and then kind of the ethical considerations that are in its background, if not its foreground. So Bill Nordhaus is the leading American environmental economist who works on climate change. Um, Lord Stern is the leading British economist who works on on climate change. Um, 
And both of them begin uh, with this framework that I've already sketched, that the problem with climate change is that it involves a negative externality. And so the solution is to internalize that externality. And one way of trying to do that uh, is by um, imposing a carbon tax. So the idea is, is you take what's called the social cost of carbon, that is the cost that emitting carbon is, is externalizing to society, and you create a tax that reflects that cost on the carbon that's being sold or the products that embody carbon, uh, and then you use that money to compensate people who are damaged by carbon emissions. So the question then becomes, what is that social cost of carbon? What is the appropriate tax? How do we think about the damages? Well, there are two fundamentally there are two fundamental issues where Nordhaus and Stern go different way in different directions. One uh, issue on which they differ. And, and this is really the deepest difference, is what's the correct methodology for trying to understand the social cost of carbon? And Nordhaus thinks the correct methodology is to just see how people value these damages. The classical, or the classic neoclassical economic story. That's right, right the neoclassical economic story. You want to know what something's worth? How much do people value it? Stern thinks that people can make mistakes, especially when damages are inflicted on other people. Now, this plays out, importantly, when it comes to future generations, because most of the damages of climate change will be felt by people in the future, and that's because carbon has this nasty habit of sticking around for about 500 years in terms of its median lifetime in the atmosphere. So, so when we talk about the damages of climate change, if climate change is so bad, then how come you know, life is still so good? Well, the answer is, wait, you ain't seen nothing yet. Most of it is very far downstream, and it's not going to be experienced by us, but by our descendants. So Nordhaus quite rightly looks at our investment decisions, and you can quarrel about the particular calculations he makes. <coughs> But fundamentally, he's, what he sees is that we don't actually value future impacts very much. And despite our rhetoric about our children and all that, we don't actually value their interests very much. So what that means is he applies a relatively high discount rate to these downstream damages. As a result, the amount of a carbon tax to mitigate those damages turns out to be relatively low. Stern looks at the same data, basically, and he says, we make mistakes. We're wrong in not valuing future people and their interests more than we do. We need a very low discount rate to reflect the fact that future people and their interests are every bit as important as we are and our interests. And when you apply Stern's discount rate, it turns out that the carbon tax that you should impose today is at least an order of magnitude greater than the one that Nordhaus would impose. So here you get two of the leading economists in the world, both operating within what is essentially the same neoclassical framework with some, uh, with some difference about how to assess the value of damages experienced in the future, and you get radically different results. So what I say is that if they have so much in common and produce such different results because they're having an argument about how to value future people, and the interests of future people, this is, this is not an economic disagreement anymore. Right? The models are sort of cranking along the way economic models crank along. 
It's just that you've got different discount rates involved. That's a philosophical question. Much Not that philosophers have particularly good answers right. to it, but it is a philosophical question rather than a strictly economics question. So what I think that shows you is that neoclassical economics, wonderful tool. You can do lots of great things with it. A lot of our tools, but it simply wasn't built to deal with problems that have time horizons on the scale of millennia. And it can only lead us astray when we try to apply it to problems for which it's not suited. Right. And then in the next chapter, you turn to thinking through how we might revise some of our philosophical and ethical notions in order to deal with such a problem. Um, and I want to spend some time here, maybe starting with how the question of human rights claims relate to climate change in your account. Um, because it seems to me that you're interested in what those claims might do, but also skeptical as well. So could you explain that? Yeah. So in terms of the architecture of the book and my thinking about these issues, essentially what, what I've said about economics, I also want to say about ethics, mm-hmm. that, that our, our, our moral and ethical concepts have also evolved to solve certain kinds of problems, and they aren't really appropriate to problems like climate change. And the category of human rights is, is, is one of those. And, you know, the, I mean, we have this general problem with the human rights vocabulary anyway, which is that it's been incredibly powerful and important and useful. And good work has been done to try to make sense of human rights. But somehow one never feels that it's fully satisfactory, that somehow... Um, the scope, the domain, the demands of human rights never quite seem, even with relatively simple cases, to be as precise as the language that philosophers tend to invoke when it comes to just ethics straight away. When it comes to issues like climate change, the, I mean, the, the problems just become enormous. I mean, um, when I, again, let's go back to my 57 Chevy cruising down the Pacific Coast Highway listening to the Beach Boys. And, and, I mean, I'm emitting carbon. Am I violating the rights of people in the future who are going to suffer from climate change? Um, it seems weird to say that. Uh, me and Idi Amin, human rights violators. Um you know, and then there are various ways one might go. You might say, well, you know, this is not enough carbon. You have to be a really big emitter. Then you're a human rights violator. But actually, no one is really as big an emitter as Hitler was a torturer, for example, right? And so we seem to get into this zone where people are certainly being damaged. And when it comes to a lot of the usual sort of human rights, the, the, the goods that we think of human rights as protecting, they're, they're, they're losing those things. They're losing food security. In some cases, they're losing their lives. All that stuff is happening. But, but it becomes very difficult to say who the human rights violators are in this, in this case. And then you begin to sort of wonder what the whole language of human rights is supposed to be doing for you. Right. And so then you turn to the notion of responsibility. Um, but you argue that it requires revised versions of responsibility in order to grapple with something like climate change. And that it's not just a matter of, um, you know, extending our principles in some modest way. That's not just kind of, you know, a slight tweak to common sense morality. Um, Why do you kind of specifically use the frame of revision? You know, why is that more appropriate than an extension of principles or something like that? Yeah, so the the same sort of problem I was sketching for human rights also comes up with the question of moral responsibility. Um, we, we don't think, for example, that when I go joyriding my 57 Chevy that I'm morally responsible for all of these harms that I have contributed a tiny, 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 vanishingly small increment to. And, there, and, and you know, there's, there's a number of interesting reasons why we don't think that. I mean, it's not just the sort of reasons that have been explored by Derek Parfit and people in that tradition that 
the increments are too small or they're imperceptible or something like that. It also has to do with the level of abstraction. It's not that my carbon molecules actually go out to some future person and ever so slightly or imperceptibly make them worse off. It's that the whole thing is mediated by this incredibly complex system where there are no linear, real linear causal chains to really try to understand here, where damages have as much to do with social facts about people being protected as they do with um, you know, these very remote causes and so on. So, so responsibility begins to seem, in, in any kind of full-blooded sense, uh, begins to seem like a notion that just doesn't apply here either. You can talk about people contributing to climate change, but being responsible for harms, that seems very difficult to do. Now, in subsequent work, I've developed this notion of what I call intervention responsibility. And the idea here is, you know, as is so often the case, when we take these philosophical concepts and we try to make them do some work and we discover that they, they're not up to it, uh, you know, we sometimes think, well, you know, that's just the wrong concept. You have to find the right account. You know, something's got to do that work. And I think I increasingly think uh, that um, there, that the kind of concepts that philosophers tend to look for, concepts that are precise, that are going to kind of, um, you know, uh, allocate uh, responsibility in a, in a very tidy way in the world and so on and so forth, they're just really not going to be found. That, that, that our concepts are really just sort of abstractions from the way that we use language, from the way that we shun people, from the way that we praise people, and so on. It's all going to be messy and pragmatic. If you look at it that way, then I think you can reconstruct a kind of rough notion of responsibility, and you can say, you're responsible. To, I mean, the, the term here, the best way of looking at this is, instead of thinking about who we should hold responsible, let's think about who can take responsibility. Mm-hmm. And those who can take responsibility are those who can intervene in a way to make things better, less worse than they otherwise would be. And I think if we, in this area, if we focused on a more rough and ready kind of intervention responsibility, that would take us away from the sort of, you know, uh, how many wrongs can dance on the head of an immoral person, you know, issues that come up with trying to assign responsibility. Right. And that same kind of practical or pragmatic streak, I think, Um, characterizes the rest of the book as well. So maybe we can turn to talk some about chapter six, um, where you, again, you argue that the task is not just to reduce or stabilize the level of carbon dioxide in the atmosphere, but how, and here I'm going to quote you, um, how to, quote, live in productive relationship with the dynamic systems that govern a changing planet, end quote. That was from page 180 of the book. Um, and this then takes you to a discussion of the Anthropocene. And maybe perhaps for our listeners that aren't familiar with the term, you could talk about kind of the shift over recent, what, 15, 20 years to think about um, nature and our relationship to it in terms of that idea of the Anthropocene. So in the 1990s, scientists started publishing papers, which were somewhat shocking because they were discovering, for example, that humanity fixes more nitrogen than all other organisms on Earth combined. That humanity allocates more fresh water, diverts more fresh water to its own uses than anything in the natural systems. More and more, uh, what scientists were seeing is that humanity was is beginning to play a role on nature that's very much like that of, 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 of any other natural system. It's becoming the major force on the planet. And it was that observation that gave rise to this notion of the Anthropocene, where it was and is being thought of as a new geological epoch that's characterized by humanity being the most powerful geological force on the planet. Now, I don't want to debate geologists about geology. And I don't, you know, I, I, I care about as much about how we d- divide up geological epochs as I care about whether we have the Julian calendar or a lunar <laughs> calendar. 
But I do think that as a cultural and moral category, the idea of the Anthropocene is very, very important. And the key notion of the Anthropocene, from this cultural, moral point of view, is that we are now living in a world in which there are so many people and the reach of our technology is so powerful that we can bring about these profound effects in the world without anyone feeling responsible, nor can our traditional concepts of responsibility be unproblematically applied to them. So the Anthropocene for me is a world in which humanity changes the world without anyone being responsible. And so I think a really a different kind of ethics is really appropriate for the Anthropocene. And it's a, a kind of ethics that focuses more on the sort of things that traditional virtue theorists talked about, ideals of human excellence, of character, and so on. But I think those virtues need, in some ways, to be reconstituted for a different kind of world. And I don't think the philosophical foundation of thinking about morality in this way is necessarily Aristotelian or um, or you know, adverts to ideas of natural teleology or human functioning. I mean, I think that there are good consequentialist reasons for mm-hmm. thinking that instead of worrying about whether acts get assigned to the, cate- to the basket of right or the basket of wrong, that we should think much more about what kind of people should we be and what kind of people should we aim to produce. Right, and so then the one virtue that, or potential virtue that you sketch out and spend a little time on is the notion of respect for nature, which I think fits in very well with this notion you talk about of how do we live with climate change. Um, could you maybe tell us why you found this notion of respect for nature is a particularly kind of salient virtue for thinking about and acting and taking responsibility in this particular way? I think respect uh, is important for at least two reasons. One side of the Anthropocene that we've talked about and environmentalists talk about almost exclusively is the sort of ruination of nature Mm -hmm. that human action is bringing about. And that's certainly the case. And so one thing that we do if we fail to respect something, if we dominate something, is we treat it carelessly, we destroy it, we ruin it, and so on and so forth. But there's another side to what happens when you don't respect something. And that, uh, and that when we fail to respect somebody, we may not wreck them or ruin them or destroy them or kill them or maim them. We simply may not take them and their autonomy and their interests seriously. We may just simply see them as extensions of ourselves. We may just be narcissists in relation to them. And that's the other side of the Anthropocene. When humanity dominates nature, we no longer have an independent partner in in which to relate in the way that humans traditionally have, and which to whom really, strange word perhaps, but to cooperate with in living our lives and making our our way through the world. Instead, nature just becomes um, an expression of our own desires. It becomes a narcissist playground. So for some, for the people who aren't going to be killed as a result of climate change, for a lot of us, uh, the world, living in a climate change world will just be more expensive, uh, more boring, uh, more predictable in a sense. I mean, assuming that the dikes hold and the, you know, the, the geoengineering of the climate doesn't give out and so on and so forth. But increasingly, we'll be living in a world of our own of our own creation, and so respecting nature is important. Both, I mean, both for protecting and preserving nature, but also for protecting and preserving 
what it is to be a person, which is in part to live in a kind of cooperative partnership with other things that I think of anyway as being self-willed and autonomous. Now, I don't, I mean, Kantians at that point start throwing up their hands and, and, all, of, and all of that. Uh, but I do think, but I think there is a more sort of primitive and less rationalized notion of autonomy and what it is to be self-willed. Um, which is just to sort of be governed by laws um, that are not imposed from without. And that uh, is a pretty good characterization of what nature is when it's not dominated by humans. Thank you. Um, Now, as we turn to the final chapter of the book, I found this really interesting because on the one hand, in the final chapter, you say that in some ways kind of the course that we've charted through this book and the work that you've done um, says that maybe, you know, we shouldn't end with this call to have, you know, all these policy proposals and so on. But at the same time, you said in the final chapter that, you know, you'd felt you'd be leaving the reader a little bit short if you didn't. So could you maybe talk through just in the process of kind of conceptualizing this book as a whole, why both there is some hesitance to name several different policy proposals, but then ultimately why you did that in the final chapter of the book? So, um, so, so let me say the modest thing, and then let me sort of say the immodest thing. So the modest thing is to say that, that in a way, what really motivated the writing of the book was, I mean, as someone who had been working on climate change for more than three decades, the issue would come into public focus, and then everybody would say, we have to save the planet, we have to save the planet, we have to save the planet, and then nothing would happen, and then people would go back to watching television until the next round of we have to save the planet, we have to save the planet, we have to save the planet. Um, and so there's a kind of, there, there is a kind of narrative structure that we impose on uh, environmental problems, which is, you know, things are bad, things are bad, things are bad, the apocalypse is happening, now we're going to be saved from the apocalypse. Uh, and I was getting tired of that narrative structure. It's like listening to a, a, a musical composition that is just endless, building up to crescendos where nothing really quite happens. And it's also untrue to what the slow, steady buildup of carbon is um, in, the, in the atmosphere. So there's, I mean, so part of the motivation of the book is to really to demystify and take apart this narrative structure that, oh, the carbon tax will save us, or, oh, we will have an ethical you know, enlightenment, and it will and it will save us. And then, we, you know, climate change will not have occurred. It will be turned back. It, it's not going to happen. Those instruments aren't going to work, and we're already committed to climate change. Problem is, it still matters what we do. It can be better. It can be worse. It can be more extreme. It can be more risky. It can be more or less risky. But the advice that you give someone about those things uh, is rather dull advice because you're no longer in the business of world saving. Mm-hmm. Uh, you're not saying this is how you prevent climate change. You're saying, well, this is how you can kind of lower the risks and maybe things won't be so bad if we're if we're if we're lucky if you take these simple steps. Now, the immodest thing to say, although it's not really immodest, because I do consider myself someone who's just sort of independently figured out how to follow this path. In some ways, it's not so different, really, from the early Rawls and the later Rawls, where the early Rawls kind of starts with this beautiful vision of what ideal justice consists in that you can actually deduce from the original position. But the later Rawls just says, well, if we can get a little overlapping (laughs) consensus here uh, where we keep the the comprehensive doctrines out of of things, you know, maybe we can make life a little little better in society. And so I do think in some ways my thinking has kind of mirrored that sort of evolution in the, in the book. If, I don't know whether it, that might be a helpful way, at least for some people, to think about it. Right. Now, there's a lot of fascinating discussion in the final chapter um, about mitigation, abatement, uh, geoengineering, and kind of a number of different ways for thinking about policy and what we might do with climate change. Um, some But instead of kind of getting to the specifics of those, I was wondering maybe if I could ask you to comment some on the outcome of the Paris talks um, in light of this book, especially because the book, you know, as you said earlier, it's coming out of kind of um, the failures from Rio to Kyoto to Copenhagen. Um, 
So, I mean, kind of how have you responded to and started to think about uh, the Paris talks? So, um, so I'm actually just now starting to give a series of talks and that are really going to be in the outcome of Paris. And Paris is sort of like taking, you know, I mean, what's the old saying? It's like taking the lemons and turning them into lemonade, mm-hmm. if you will. Um, so, so the attempt from 1992, from the Rio Earth Summit to Copenhagen in 2009, was to actually get some globally binding agreement that would be constructed out of some principles that all countries would actually accept as being reasonably fair uh, and would bring us down this path of moving away from, um, from a world in which climate change was likely to be extreme. Copenhagen completely failed, and it was clear that that wasn't going to happen. But what did happen in the wake of Copenhagen, or what became clear, is that even though there wasn't much appetite in the world of 2009, unlike the world of 1992, for some globally binding commitment, the domestic values and politics of each country was driving some action on climate change. And in a country like Germany, it was driving a lot of action. And in countries like uh, Poland, very little. Countries like the United States, a lot of Obama's president and not so much of George W. Bush's president. So you're getting all of this action that's going on in individual countries. Um, But no one is really going to sign up for this grand bargain. Um, you know, you, the, the Dutch and the Belgians, but that doesn't do much for the world, right? So Paris tries to turn that into a virtue and, 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 and basically says, okay, well, we're all going to just voluntarily agree to do these things, and then we're going to sort of add them together uh, and see what we have. And then we're going, every five years, we're going to talk to each other, and we're going to try to become more ambitious, and we're going to try to be transparent uh, and call people out if they don't keep those pledges and so on. So the first thing to say about it is in this veil of tears in which we find ourselves, it is the best we can do by way of an international agreement. But the real work to be done is at the level of nations and communities, not at the international level. And whether Paris is seen as um, capitulation to climate change or the moment at which the nations of the world became serious about it, is going to depend enormously on civil society in, in each country, holding themselves and their leaders responsible for keeping those commitments, mm-hmm. but also keeping the pressure on for more increasingly serious commitments. So there is now absolutely no difference between an international agreement and stopping leasing public lands for coal exploration, which mm-hmm. the Obama administration did. These, are, these no longer exist in different worlds. This is the only world there is for controlling climate change. And how we do in that world remains to be seen. It's a little bit like we're 16 and we got our driver's license. <laughs> Uh, will we use it to, um, to, uh, to bring food to people who need it? Or will we go out and get drunk with our friends and run into the ditch? Uh, the answer remains to be seen. All right. Thank you. Now, before we depart, I was wondering if there's anything uh, from the book that we didn't discuss in the interview that you'd like to relate to our listener. No, John, I think your questions were very good, and I think we covered Thanks. Then, I mean, you've already hinted at a couple different places, but kind of our traditional last question is to ask you what you're working on now. So I'm working on really two things. One is so, so kind of very immediately I'm working on uh, writing something and giving some talks around the Paris Agreement mm-hmm. and, what, and how this sort of fits into the story that I've told and what we can hope, hope to get from it. But I have another body of work which will eventually become a book that I'm tentatively calling How to Live in the Anthropocene. And it's much, it uh, tries to be a much fuller development of what in this book I talk about is the green virtues. And 
I've also become especially interested in recent years in love, love of nature in particular. So I'm also working on bringing concepts of love together with the idea of loving aspects of the natural world. Right. Dale, thank you so much for joining us on New Books in Global Ethics and Politics. Lucky Land Casino asking people what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? Lucky? In line at the deli, I guess? Aha, in my dentist's office. More than once, actually. Do I have to say? Yes, you do. In the car before my kid's PTA meeting. Really? Yes. Excuse me, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? I never win and tell. Well, there you have it. You can get lucky anywhere, playing at LuckyLandSlots.com. Play for free right now. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Voidware prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details.